Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books. Mysteries and thrillers from mainstream publishers leaving you feeling like you kissed your best friend? Then you, my friend, are ready to step down. Down to Down and Out Books. Mystery, thrillers, and horror. Gritty, hardcore, and obscure. Twisted, imaginative, and fantastic. Stories the way you like them. Discover your next amazing read at downandoutbooks.com. That's spelled out down, A-N-D, out, books. Com, and of course, your favorite social media site. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. Welcome to Season 3, called Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations of the first cases for detectives. Some will be characters from books, screen, and stage. Others will be lesser known, but with great stories that we hope you give a try. For episode one, we go back to Edgar Allan Poe's C. August Dupin. We did Dupin's first mystery, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, as episode one of season two. We're starting this season with his third case, The Purloined Letter. Many of the detectives that come later compared themselves to Dupin, which made it feel wrong to begin the season with anyone else. Episode 1 is about secrets, blackmail, and outsmarting the cops. This is Dupin's The Purloined Letter, an adaptation of Edgar Edgar Allan Poe's The Purloined Letter. All right, Jack, welcome to season three. So our story today was published in December of 1844 in a literary annual called The Gift, Christmas, New Year, and Birthday Present, 1845. Edgar Allan Poe's third C. August Dupin story has little to no information on the setting, uh, aside from it being in Paris, leaving us to conclude that it's a contemporary, meaning the story is set in 1844 to 1845. You know, every time I do a little research on French history, I get pulled into the most twisting, turning rabbit hole. So in 1844, Paris and all of France was under the rule of King Louis-Philippe. Louis-Philippe was the Duke of, uh, I should have asked you how to say some of these French words, Jack, before I dove into this podcast, was the Duke of Charters, Chartres. People in New Orleans are going to hate this too, because I know this word is all over down there and I still can't say it. And he was born into the lower line of the House of Bourbon. That word I can say. While the lower line was still noble, the kings came from the upper line. Louis-Philippe did not have an easy line to the throne, and in fact, he lived his life without the expectation of that possibility. He had a successful military career, becoming a lieutenant general by the time he was 19. 19, Jack, and he was a lieutenant general. After being implicated in conspiracy, though, and labeled a traitor, he left France and had to live in exile for 20 years. 
in that time he traveled extensively to stay alive and selling off pretty much everything he had of value. He worked for a time as a school teacher in a boarding school teaching geography, history, mathematics, and language. And in his travels, he met and married a princess from the Kingdom of Two Sicilies in 1809. It wasn't until the July Revolution in 1830 that Charles X was overthrown and Louis-Philippe returned to France. He was seen as the leader of the people and was offered the crown. Louis-Philippe was crowned King of the French rather than the King of France or Emperor of the French as Napoleon was. And he ruled from 1830 to 1848 when there was yet another French Revolution. So at the time that Poe was likely writing this story, the head of the Paris police was a position known as the Prefect of Police. And Poe in the story referred to the man only as G. So I did a little research. Henri Gesset, a banker, held the position from 1831 to 1836, but this seemed a little too early to be the man that Poe was referring to. His successor was a gentleman named Gabriel Delessere who held the chair from 1836 to 1848. Since his name begins with G, albeit it's his first name, it was close enough for me, and that is who we have in our story today. The Purloin letter makes a strong reference to the letter in question belonging to the Queen. However, Louis-Philippe's wife, Marie Amalia Theresa, did not involve herself in politics. So the role that I guess would be equal to the First Lady here in the States was filled by Louis-Philippe's sister, Adelaide. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that as pretty as it would be in French. Um, so anyway, she's who I used. The minister who stole the letter, and note that isn't a spoiler, this mystery is about where the letter is, not who the thief is, was only referred to as D. I chose the name Ganya because, number one, I can say it, and number two, I knew someone named Ganya in high school and never forgot that his name meant swan. That's why I picked the name, because his name meant Swan, and I can remember it. All right, Jack, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what was going on in the world at this time? Howdy. So, the word purloined means to appropriate wrongfully and often by a breach of trust, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. I definitely didn't read that off a of script. Synonyms include steal, swipe, appropriate, misappropriate, which seems wrong, lift, hook, pocket, and pinch. The word dates back to the 15th century, which means it was 200 years old when Pope used it in the title of his story in the 1840s. Pretty cool. I thought it was cool. Yeah. I didn't know what it meant. I, I truly had to look it up. It's to purr someone's loins. I... Hmm? Nothing. You didn't hear that. Yeah, you're right. I didn't hear that. Nice. Okay. So... <laughs> We're going to pretend that didn't happen. Writing and music were big and getting bigger in America. Uh, around this time, Poe was living in Boston, having moved there from Baltimore in 1835. By 1841, Ludwig van Beethoven had performed his Symphony No. 1 for the first time in Boston, showing the acceptance of European composers in America. In New Orleans, the Théâtre de la Renaissance opened which being 1840 and Instagram not being a thing, Poe probably didn't know about it. Tensions between the North and South were starting to show. It was still 20 years until President Lincoln would be elective and the Civil War would begin. 
However, Poe would only live to 1849 until his mysterious death in Baltimore. In yeah, what so, I didn't say anything. Oh, you inhaled. Oh. <laughs> in France, where our story is set, uh, Frédéric Chopin uh, was living in Paris, having what? Oh, having from Poland, moving from Poland in 1831. Uh, the famed pianist would stay for another 18 years, performing for the king. A famous violinist named Nizolo Paganini uh, had entered Paris only to lose a wager at a casino and go bankrupt. Sucks. In the beginning of 1830s, police counted 271 wandering street musicians and 135 street singers. Popular songs ranged from romantic to comedy to satirical to political to revolutionary, especially in the 1840s. Keep in mind that 1848 French Revolution was only eight years away, so these are controversial times. If this all sounds familiar, it's because we've said it before. You know what I find interesting? Like, we've only had one revolution. I mean, so it's kind of like a big one to us. But it seems like the French have had at least three. Uh, I think more than that. More than that? Yeah, that's a lot of work. Well, it's also slightly ironic that they're known for surrendering, despite the fact that they, you know, go to war every couple hundred years. They're known for surrendering? I didn't know that. I thought they were known for pastries. No, you ever raise a white flag and say, oh, look, it's the French flag? We never. (laughs) No, no. We did that in one of my French projects. Yeah. We we had to beat up a seal and we had him. It was not a real seal. It was a stuffed seal for those animal lovers out there. (laughs) And we uh, had him wave a white flag. And one of my guys goes, look, he's waving the French flag. And. (laughs) It was possibly the peak of our comedy in high school. Um, <laughs> Did you get an A on that project? We got an A on every project. Oh. It's not hard to get an A as long as you just do it in that class. It's pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's keep going. So we are ready to begin our story. So Jack's resetting his microphone and getting his fingers in place. And a reminder on why we're doing adaptations of these early stories. Two main reasons. The language from some of these 18 and 1900s can be very hard. Um, it's just difficult to understand with our modern ear, and dear Lord, they like to use the comma. Second is the style and length of these stories were not created for listening. They were created for reading. So with these adaptations, we keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but package it for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes, and so now we are ready for Dupin and the Purloin Letter. Jack, if you will, take us in. Chapter 1. See August Dupin. When we first met in Season 2, Episode 1, in a story that I called The Thinking Man, but that you also know as The Murders in the Rue Morgue, I introduced you to my new friend, Auguste Dupin. We met in a library, brought together by love of of obscure facts. I don't recall mentioning it before, but Dupin is a cavalier. He's not a basketball player from the industrialized American city of Cleveland, but a knight of the French order. His family was once one of the richest and most respected in all of Paris. Nearly the last of his line, Dupin has maintained the respect, albeit with a much lighter purse. 
From the first conversation, I've been fascinated with the way Dupin thinks. For him, information was the center of a web with connectors rating out to other centers. His mind was a nimble spider racing through this network, moving from idea to idea, connecting the seemingly unrelated to come up with the most amazing conclusions. Hence, it made sense that Dupin craved information. In the years we have lived together, I can't begin to estimate the number of books that have crossed our threshold. A thousand? Ten thousand? Astronomy, biology, Christianity, dynamics, engineering, finance, geography. Well, you get the idea. No subject was outside the bounds of our voracious curiosity. Some we owned, most we borrowed. Dupin had the uncanny ability to connect the apparently disconnected. I told you about the time I looked at the star-filled night and Dupin ascertained, correctly mind you, that I was thinking about an actor poorly cast in the role of that epic Greek, Alexander the Great. He succeeds, in my humble opinion, because he views everything as having consequence. Or perhaps it is better said he sees nothing as being inconsequential. A tear in a skirt, a stain on a shirt, mud on your shoes. To Dupin, these were more than a challenge for the laundry. A tear in a skirt would mean the woman wearing it took a shortcut home through the briar patch, which she would only do if she were running late and needed to save the time it would take to go properly through the village green. And such a woman was very likely at a clandestine meeting as if her encounter were proper, she would not have worried about returning late. Seeing the vitality in her cheeks and the smile on her face, Dupin would know the meaning was of a and the meeting was of a romantic nature. Questioning the young woman with the tear in her skirt, Dupin would simply say to her, Mademoiselle, please tell me the name of your lover who keeps you out so late. Caught by the element of surprise, she would give the name she had promised to take to the grave. The stain on a shirt belonged to a man who stole from his former employer and attempted to hide it by altering his logs. The ink that was supposed to hide his crime instead pointed out his guilt. And the mud on your shoes obviously meant that you were not home last night, as you said, but gallivanting about town with that lowlife you swore to your family you didn't see anymore. It wasn't just me who marveled at Dupin's detective capabilities. Monsieur Gabriel Delessere, prefect for the police of Paris, had come to view Dupin as the type of consultant. He was a regular guest in our parlor, and that is him walking up to our door right now. Chapter 2, A Regular Guest, His Usual Chair, and a Touchy Situation The position of Prefect of Police had been a doctor that opened and closed, had been a door that opened and closed so many times, it would have been easier if it had been revolving. In 1830 alone, the year of the French Revo the, of the July Revolution, five men held the position. When the selection of Louis-Philippe as King of the French in August 1831, stability eventually came. Henri Gisset held the post for five years and was seated by the man sitting in our parlor. Gabriel Delessere took over in 36. After eight years, the roosters and the nobility and the cocks and the gentry hadn't worn the authoritarian polish off the man. Today, however, his appearance could be most generously described as tumbled. Our regular guest crossed without invitation to the chair we all thought of as his. 
It was comfortable with a high back and a small table posed at the right hand, just where a man would prefer a brandy, if he had one. Dupin sat in the leather chair that was undoubtedly his. Stacks of books to the left and right were growing and slow to, slowly enclosing him. Dupin wore a pair of green glasses he bought at a small shop. The lenses were so heavily tinted, they obscured his eyes. The world must have looked like he was peering through pea soup. As Dupin made no move to leave his chair, I played host. At the bar, we kept well stocked. I poured brandies all around. Trouble in gay Perry? I asked Delisere as I handed him a glass. He waved his hands dismissively. In a city of 940,000 people, trouble is as plentiful as rats. It is one rat that is the cause of my woes. He looked at Dupin, one very clever rat. Do tell, Dupin said. A letter has been stolen, and the lady whose letter it is wants it back. In the wrong hands, it forces her to yield to political pressures. Delacere sipped his brandy. It would be an incorrect assumption to think the lady in question was the queen. Marie Amalia Therese, queen of the French, was from the kingdom of two Sicilies. She wasn't Italian. Italy, as you think of it, wouldn't be united for another 40 years. Instead, she was one of the younger daughters of the kingdom that include Naples and Sicily. Queen Marie Amalia did not want the title. She, in fact, discouraged her husband, Louis-Philippe, from accepting the crown. When he did, she dedicated herself to being the heart of France. She took care of the poor and downtrodden, volunteering her time and using her own allowance to serve others. The role of the estate hostess and advisor to the king was filled by his younger sister, Princess Adelaide. Although younger in years, Adelaide was a spinster, never marrying. Rather than live the simple retiring life that society allowed her, she lived her life out front. She had the king's ear. It was said they spoke daily and she frequently advised him on politics. Hence, this purloined letter was the property of Princess Adelaide. Do you have any idea who has the princess's letter, Dupin said, saying aloud what I surmised for you in my head. Delacere appeared gobsmacked. I didn't say the letter belonged to the princess. There are many ladies in Paris who could be compromised by such a letter. Dupin arched an eyebrow, making it visible over the green lens. Oh, fine, Dupin, you always know so much, our guest said in frustration. No, my friend, I only know as much as I have read or experienced. For example, I do not know if you su suspect the thief. Delacere nodded. The lady knows who took it. She all but saw it. She had received the letter in her old apartment and was reading it when her brother entered. He being someone she wanted to hide the letter from, she attempted to place it in her desk drawer. When that was not possible, she laid it down on the desk, address side up. The content was hidden. His Majesty overlooked the letter as they carried on their conversation. One of his ministers came in, Gagne. You know of him? Dupin gave that infamous French shrug. Somewhat. My father and he had some business dealings. He is a weasel, no matter his name, Delacere said, referring to Gagne as being the French word for swan. He saw the letter and took note of the address and handwriting. In the course of his business with the king, he switched the letter out for one complaining about the quantity of horse manure on Parisian streets. The lady witnessed the switch but couldn't call attention to it without calling the king's attention to the letter. Ah, Dupin said, 
So the victim knows who the perpetrator is, and the perpetrator knows the victim knows. It's an intricate dance. Gagne was known as much for his wits as for his sometimes devious ways he chose to employ them. I doubted Gagne had many true friends, but he had an abundance of people who were wary of crossing him. Delisert leveled narrow eyes at me. I doubt Gagne suspected what was in the letter when, I when he took it, but what he found inside was as valuable as one of his diamond mines. It has been months now, and the political fallout has been a silent catastrophe. The princess has effectively had her wings clipped. Chapter 3. Delacere's Lament I refilled Delacere's brandy, encouraging him to continue talking. He would often have more than one brandy with us, but not in the first 15 minutes. The lady called me to her parlor, he said, and charged me with recovering her letter. She told me everything I had told you, along with some information on what was in the letter, which I will keep to myself. I returned to my office and called in two of my most trusted officers. One officer began to surveil Gagne. It took only three days to determine that he was the man of utmost routine. He left home at nine in the morning, taking meetings and paying calls until luncheon. He dined out daily with businessmen or members of the nobility. He returned home in the evening, remaining there for two hours before he left for his club. Each of the three nights he went to a different club, returning home shortly after midnight. It took three more nights to confirm the observed routine. Sunday differed only in that he went to mass instead of work in the morning. In all other ways, he kept to his routine. Gagne is not married, I asked. A widower of ten years, Delacere said. What of your other man, Dupin asked. I gave him the chore of tracing Gagne's movements from the time he left with the letter in question. He confirmed that Gagne's movements matched his routine. From the palace, he went to his home where he keeps his office. He luncheoned alone at his favorite restaurant before returning home. My man could find nothing to indicate Gagne passed the letter off to someone or sent it outside of Paris. Delacere swirled the amber liquor, a smile gracing his lips. I even thought to myself, what would my friend Dupin think of this little mystery of the purloined letter? The answer is that Gagne has kept the letter nearby. It only works as a hammer if it can be accessed quickly. A delay in even a few hours would diminish its power. Dupin raised his glass in a toast with an answering smile. I agree with my thinking. What have you done? I asked. Delacere set his newly emptied brandy glass on the table. I confronted him first. I didn't expect it to work, but even if it didn't, he would know that I know what he did. I grinned. You were the fox warning the chicken. I was not so much the fox, he said, as the mule. Gagne sat behind his pompous desk and told me I would never find the letter. His expression didn't change. He did not so much as smirk, but he was laughing at me. It was in his eyes. He dared me to prove he was a thief. Delacere pushed out of the chair and began to pace our book-cluttered room. Each night after he left for his club, we went into his house to search. One room per night, we looked in, under, and behind everything. Two weeks it took, but we came away empty. You did not destroy the rooms, Dupin asked. Correct, Delacere said. We left each room exactly as we found it. We were invisible. I could see Dupin's eye roll 
I couldn't see Dupin's eye roll, but I could feel it. No team of four to six police officers were invisible. Did you look inside the furniture? Dupin asked. A letter is quite small and could be rolled into a tube. Delisser swung around at the other end of the room. After walking away with nothing, I had the same thought. We returned a few days later, our focus on the furniture. We even brought in an expert to guide us. Still, we found nothing. He planted his elbows on our mantle and dropped his head into his hands. This case may be the end of my career. I have survived calls from the nobility of my removal, assassination attempts, peasant uprisings. To think an ill-conceived letter in the wrong hands would be what brings me to my knees. He shook his head. It sickens me. I would pay to end this madness. 20,000, no, 50,000 francs. Would you really, Depen asked, interrupting Lacerre's lament. Chapter 4 The Fox in Swan's Clothes The next day, Dupin and I left our home at an ungodly hour. By silent, mutual agreement, Dupin and I normally labored the day away behind heavy curtains, reading books, debating academic topics. Come sunset, we would venture out into Paris streets, putting our book learning into practice. Sunlight was assaulting. Dupin was again wearing those dark green glasses of his. I was envious for once as his eyes were protected where mine were tearing like I was a variety of vampire. I lifted a hand to shade my eyes and barked out in laughter, looking to Dupin. His smile was small but knowing. I have heard of such creatures also, but far away in Romania, not here in Paris. Dupin wasn't talking about vampires, not officially. Count Dracula wouldn't be birthed from the Romanian county of Transylvania and the Irish writer Bram Stoker for another 50 years. Is the sun brighter than it usually is, I asked? Perhaps the earth is warming. Instead of an ice age, we're in a melting age. Dupin chuckled. Fear not, my friend, you will not melt. We are here. He climbed the stairs and pulled the bell. When Gagné's man answered the door, Dupin presented his card. Chevalier Dupin and Monsieur Poe. I will see if Monsieur de, Ga de Gagné is in, he said, allowing us to wait in the dreaded sunlight. It was a matter of a minute before the door opened again. Gagné's man allowed us to enter and showed us into a well-appointed parlor. Monsieur will be with you shortly, he said, backing out and closing the door. Alone in Gagné's parlor, Dupin and I wasted no time. It is in this house, my friend. The man trusts no one to sleep in his house. He surely wouldn't trust a valuable treasure in someone else's hands. The parlor suited a man of Gagné's position and age. Impeccably clean, the room nonetheless had the feel that it had not been frequently used. The furniture and decor had a quality of being curated. I suspect we are looking at the work of Madame Gagné, Dupin said. Rest her soul. Of course, I said. The minister does not seem a man to host a soiree. The room was slightly longer than wide, with a large hearth in the middle of the long outside wall. The room was arranged as such. The wall fronting the street had floor-to-ceiling windows dressed in silk drapes. The walls between the painted were painted blue and decorated with portraits. The wall in the fireplace was the outside wall. The wall again alternated windows and paintings. The mantle over the fireplace had candles decorated with an arrangement of rocks that I took to be raw examples of the mineral of his mines. 
A gilded mirror hung over the mantel. With effort, I was able to look behind the mirror. I found nothing but cobwebs. Embarrassing. The opposite narrow wall had a second door. It was heavy, oak, and closed. The bulk of the wall was consumed by a large oil painting. The wall with the door through which we had entered held shelving with items of curiosity designed to entertain and brag in equal measure. The souvenirs from Gagné's travels were amusements, none of which held the letter. The room was arranged with three seating areas. In front of the street side were windows, in front of the fireplace, and then an intimate group of three chairs in a reading corner. The door opened and in walked a confident man of about 50. Chevalier Dupin, it has been years, Gagné said with a cordial welcome. His man followed him with a tray of drinks. Good to see you. As it is you, Monsieur Gagné, may I present my good friend, Monsieur Poe. I bowed. Monsieur, your portrait collection of your family is top rate. Who is the artist? The artist I know, the people I don't, Gagné said. My father was fond of collecting. I have better things to do with my time. Like blackmailing princesses, I thought. Speaking of better things, Dupin began and casually went to the backstory created for our entry. A cousin of mine had bought an investment, has brought an investment opportunity in a silver mine. I need advice from an experienced mine man. Dupin produced the letter that, and the map that his cousin had sent. It took two days of research and execution to create the ruse. Given the way Gagné scrutinized it, I was glad we took the time. Come into my office, Gagné said. I want to compare these maps with some of my own. Chapter 5. A Fool and His Gold Gagné led us out of the parlor and across the foyer to a room that was similar in size but decorated very differently. Where the parlor had been furnished to encourage conversation, this room had been designed for business. Only the street side wall had windows. A large table sat under the windows with a single chair. Positioned for the best natural light, this was a work table. Being a table, there were no drawers which could hide the letter. No less than five neat stacks of paper and leather-bound books framed a central space. On the right-hand side was a page with numbers scribbled both in lead and in ink. A fireplace sat at the midpoint of the long exterior wall, which abutted to the neighboring home. The chimney rose through the ceiling and was flanked by shelves stacked to overflowing with books. A single chair was positioned in front of the fireplace, a table at the right hand, footstool at the ready. This was a place for contemplating and relaxing, alone. A large desk befitting the king himself separated the rear of the room from the front. Gagné waved us to a pair of chairs in front of the desk. En route to my chair, I swung wide and noted that the desk included a large shallow center drawer and three drawers on either side. The top was no deeper than the center drawer and the middle was twice as deep and the third could fit a bottle. The three foot deep top was neatly arranged with an oil lamp, a few stacks of papers to the right, and three books to his left. The papers laid face up and I could clearly read the address. It was an invitation to a luncheon being hosted by a notable countess. The event had been yesterday. Mounted on the wall was a type of five slot valet meant for holding and organizing paper. 
Standing on their short sides, the tops peered out over the top, making identifying the pages easy for Gagne. Three slots were filled. The lowest was nearly overflowing. The next held pages with tattered edges, as if read frequently. The next was empty, but the second to the top held crisp pages. Gagne did not go for the pages in his valet, though. Instead, he turned behind him to a wooden box that was divided into cubbies large enough to shove my fist and arm into. All contained rolls of paper. Some barely worthy of the space, others squeezed against the side. Gagne pulled a roll somewhere in between out of the middle. He moved the books to the floor and then he unrolled the maps. One must be careful these days, gentlemen, Gagne said as he flipped through the oversight pages. There are many a poor man who delights in selling a, a noble a plot of worthless land. We are well aware the truth of that, Dupin said. I have a difficult time believing my cousin would be one of those men. It is easier to believe that he was taken in, I said, and not realizing the truth of it, thought to share his good fortune with you. Dupin sighed. Sadly, I can see that scenario. Georges never could hold on to a franc. I had no idea if Dupin had a cousin named Georges or not. I leaned into the desk. What do you think, Gagne? Is the claim on the mine legitimate? Gagne raised his eyes from the map to me. The document itself appears to be in order, but these are easy to forge. The detail of the mine survey is where the real information is hidden. This will take time, I'm afraid. We appreciate your insights, I said. An apology for the imposition. Perhaps, perhaps we can leave it with you, Depend said, overriding me. We can return in two days, if that is sufficient time. That is more than enough, Gagne said, standing tall. I am intrigued, I admit. The conversation following that moment was brief and only served to expedite our exit. When we were out on the street and a good distance from Gagne's home, I stopped Dupin with a hand on his arm. Why did you change our plan, I asked. We agreed we were going to draw out the interview and make excuses to inspect the other rooms in his house. Dupin began walking again, a smile on his face. We did not need to see the other rooms. Gagne truly is a fox, hiding the letter in plain sight. He huffed in laughter. Delisere was so determined to find a hidden letter that he overlooked the obvious. We have two days, my friend, to create a plan that will earn us the letter and Delisere's 50,000 francs. So this is the part in the story where we pause to give you a chance to catch a thief. I don't know what Dupin saw, but he assures me that my account of our time in Gagne's home includes everything that is needed. He really grouped me into the same category as Delisere. Tell me, where do you think the princess's letter is? Any guesses, Jack? Why did you talk like Dora the Explorer? Can <laughs> you find? <laughs> you used to love Dora the Explorer. That's not what the conversation's about. This is the part of the story where we paused. That was my professional voice. Yeah, and then what'd you say after that? I don't know. Yeah, you do. And exactly, because you sound like Dora the Explorer. Freaking Blue's Clues, all right? Hey, if it works for Blue, it works for us. You were like one word away from rhyming that. <laughs> you have to do it. That was rude. Especially with Blue's Clues. You could have said, if it works for Blue, it works for you, but you said it works for us. Well, I didn't want to be selfish. It's not selfish if you're talking to me. That is true. That is true. 
Well, before we go into Dupin's reveal, here's a quick note for our mystery readers. The second in my Diamond series, Suicide Squeeze, is available. Diamond wanted 10 minutes of peace and quiet. She got an incessant doorbell, pressed by a gorgeous blonde, holding a note compelling Diamond's help. The blonde had a story. The, no one believes my perfect husband's been kidnapped kind of story. I roll. Diamond slid the safety on the gun and climbed out of the bathtub. Dying would have to wait. Put Suicide Squeeze on the top of your reading stack. She and I are available from your favorite bookseller. All right, Jack. Let's find out if Dupin can purloin the purloined letter. Two days later, Dupin and I called upon Gagne at our appointed time. Being expected this time, Gagne's man showed us directly into his office. Our host rose from this working table when we entered. Cavalier Dupin, Monsieur Pro, how are you this afternoon? We entered and drifted toward the solitary chair in front of the fire. Anxious, Dupin said, I have thought about little except my cousin's proposal since we last met. I have drafted a check in the case that you have found the investment to be legitimate. Gagne frowned, his brows pushing down. I see, Dupin said. I suspect your results do not support a draft on my accounts. May I sit? He indicated the chair in front of the desk. Gagne looked as though he just remembered he had manners. Of course, please do. Perhaps a glass of brandy as, you are correct, I do not have good news. I stayed by the fireplace, accepting a drink from the butler as he made his rounds with the tray. Gagne dismissed the butler and turned to the question at hand. This claim and the map were very convincing. Truth be told, these documents would have fooled a lesser man. You see, the clever fiend transposed two real elements over the top of each other to create a very believable but fictional mine. Look here. Gunfire disrupted the lecture. I hurried to the front window. The crowd is running, I said. Gagne appeared quickly at my shoulder. What the deuce is going on out there? Someone discharged a pistol, I said, leaning over the work table to gain a better view of the neighborhood. I'm not sure who. This has to be a mistake, Gagne said. This is a good neighborhood. The police are only making people run faster, I said. Gagne grunted his assent. There is still a lot of distrust for anyone in uniform. Too many heads have rolled for imagined indiscretions. The indiscretions were imagined, Dupin said, suddenly appearing with us. Certainly, some of the crimes were real. Gagne waved off the comment. Crimes in prisons are for commoners. You have no fear of the police, Dupin asked, as the last of the bustling pedestrians hurried by the window. Where do you get your confidence, sir? For I should like to drink from that bottle. I drink from the font of knowledge, Gagne said, turning away from the window. Come, let us look at this map of your cousins. As I was saying, the fiend has been clever in his way. He overlapped two mountainous ranges that are similar. I should say I would have fallen for it myself had I not been to both areas. We followed him back to his desk, where Gagne expertly picked apart our ruse. We left 30 minutes later with Gagne's condolences and a warning that there were few things sure in the mining industry. Delisere joined us that evening for a meal. Dupin and I allowed the conversation to take its own path, but it was not long before Delisere talked about the letter. 
I happened across Gagne at the Garden of the Louvre, Delasere said, clutching the stem of his wine glass too tightly. He asked me if I found my letter yet. When I said I was getting closer, he laughed. There are times I just want to... He shook his wine glass. Thankfully, he had consumed all but the last drops. Are you still prepared to write a check for 50,000 francs, Dupin asked. Delacere stopped chalking the crystal to stare at my friend. Absolutely. He pulled a note from his inside pocket and wrote it payable to see August Dupin for the agreed to sum. He slid it across the table. Dupin picked up the note, replacing it with the letter in question. Delacere hastily snatched the pages and read, My thanks to you, Dupin, truly. But how? Where did you find it? I surmised, as you said, that Gagne was keeping the letters in his townhouse, Dupin began. A few minutes in his home told me that Gagne lived in just a few rooms, his office, his bedroom perhaps. The others were incidental to the house and a remnant of his wife. You were so sure Gagne hid the letter that you only looked in places it could be concealed. Gagne himself provided a clue. He said they weren't hidden anywhere that could be found. That is because they were not hidden. The pages were stacked in the letter valet within arm's reach of the man when he was sitting at his desk. Delasert smiled. Does he know it is gone? Not likely, Dupin said. I replaced it with original writings from a Chinese philosopher, Confucius. Perhaps he will learn something. Delasert began to laugh. I doubt that, my friend. I doubt that very much. So there you have it, the purloined letter. Now let's pick it apart. If we take the role of Gagne, does logic hold? Sure, he comes across the letter addressed to a powerful woman and steals it. He doesn't attempt to make it look like a mistake, but boldly replaces the letter with one of his own, telling the lady, who the letter was who took the letter from this we know that the minister acts swiftly as there was no opportunity to premeditate the theft and that Gagne decided to steal it without the contents without knowing the contents he acted boldly essentially telling the princess he did it there was some risk to it what if the letter contained nothing more than an account of a social engagement maybe knowing the sender him or herself meant that the odds that it was good information was, you know, not a long bet. So knowing that Gagne acted swiftly, was bold, and had more than a healthy dose of arrogance, it's plausible that he would hide the letter in plain sight. Does it make sense that Delacere would not recover the letter? In this part, I had trouble with Delacere's entering Gagne's house night after night without being discovered. First, didn't, the Gagne, didn't Gagne as a minister have staff living at his house? Would it truly be empty each night? And second, didn't the neighbors notice a group of men coming to Gagne's door after he left for the club and then leaving some hours later? In the original text, as in my adaptation, Delacere didn't search his home once, but searched it day after day, room by room. Perhaps Gagne did know what Delacert was doing, but he didn't care. He was so confident in Delacert's incompetence that he walked out each night knowing what was coming. I guess I could buy that. If it were me, after that first night, I would have moved the letter to a room already searched. So, mostly it works. You have to suspend a couple very minor points of disbelief, but all in all, pretty solid. And that concludes, then, 
this oh i wanted to tell you that this is the third story and the last of dupens and his narrator we skipped the second mystery the murder of marie roger in which poe used dupen to solve the real life murder of mary rogers a cigar girl in new york the story is terribly tedious I even started creating a matrix and I got lost on the accounts between the newspaper articles. It would have been impossible as a podcast. Hence, we skipped it. All right. Now we are ready to wrap up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Show our show support by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can, and we'll reward you with member-only episodes. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf.com backslash, maybe that's a forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Dupin and the Purloin Letter was written by T.G. Wolf, adapted from the Purloin Letter by Edgar Allan Poe. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Look forward to seeing you all in two weeks when episode two drops. And that is going to be Monsieur Leclerc and the mystery at Orceval. All right, Jack, take us out. <laughs>